Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Inside OSU podcast. I'm Julia Benbrook. We all learn a lot during our teenage years, but Winston Churchill's granddaughter, Celia Sands, got to travel the world with one of the key players from the Second World War. Winston Churchill helped lead the Allies to victory in Europe, and his granddaughter now uses her voice to give a unique perspective on his life. Sands met President Hargis and the first cowgirl, Ann Hargis, through a mutual friend over the summer. And when the Hargises found out that she occasionally gives talks in the States, they knew they wanted to host her at Oklahoma State University. Celia has written many books filled with stories about the man she calls Grandpapa. And now she's sharing some of those memories on this week's Inside OSU podcast. Today, I'm going to try and tell you a little bit of what it was like to grow up with the most famous man in the world. When ears were deaf and tongues were mute, you told of doom to come. When others fingered on the flute, you thundered on the drum. When armies marched and cities burned and all you said came true, those who had mocked your warnings turned almost too late to you. Then doubt gave way to firm belief, and through five cruel years, you gave us glory in our grief and laughter through our tears. When final honours are bestowed and last accounts are done, then shall we know how much was owed by all the world to one. That is how millions of people, both in Britain and here in the United States, regarded Winston Churchill in 1945. People often ask me, what is my favorite memory of my grandfather? For me, that's an impossible question. There are so many. I only knew one of my grandfathers, so I quite naturally assumed that every grandfather was exactly the same as him. If I'd had to describe a grandfather, he would have been a loving and much-loved man, puffing a large cigar, with everyone, secretaries, colleagues, family and friends, all running around trying to make life as comfortable and easy for him as possible. A man with endless knowledge and many interests, who recited poetry, made people laugh, loved animals, and walking around his garden at Chartwell in Kent, which some of you may have visited. Above all, he liked painting. One day, a present arrived for me with a rather badly wrapped, and it had a card attached to it, which said, please look after him, your loving grandpapa. In a fever of excitement, I tore off the paper, and inside I found a life-size toy bulldog. He had wheels in his paws, and when I pulled him along, his head moved from side to side. I was about five years old. I was enchanted, but puzzled. So I asked my mother why I'd got a present when it wasn't my birthday. She explained that someone had sent him to Grandpapa and he thought I might like him. I did, but that perplexed me even more. I went to bed that night and pondered on this. The next morning I set off for school on a mission. I asked my friends, I said, my grandfather's a bulldog, what sort of dog is yours? (laughs) No one admitted to their grandfather being a chihuahua. By observing how people behaved when they were with him and how they spoke about him, little by little it dawned on me that people thought there was something very special about my mother's father 
with whom I spent a lot of time when I was growing up. The first 21 years of my life are full of recollections in which he plays a part. Whatever the mood, my abiding memory is of warmth, affection, and humor. When he was a child, the young Winston, with his brother Jack, in the charge of their nanny, Mrs. Everest, spent long periods of time at Blenheim Palace with their grandparents, the Duke and Duchess of Marlborough. Blenheim is the ancestral home of the Churchill family and the place of young Winston's birth. My brother and I had similar holidays, but on a smaller scale. Any of you who might have been to Blenheim will know it's impossible to do anything not on a smaller scale. It's not quite Versailles, but it's very, very large. We spent our holidays at Chequers, the Prime Minister's country house, like your Camp David, or at Chartville, my grandparents' country house in Kent. Like our grandfather, we were always accompanied by our wonderful nanny. Churchill described his nanny, Mrs. Everest, like this. He said, my nurse was my confidant. It was to her I poured out all my many troubles. When she died in 1894, he said, I lost my dearest and most intimate friend through the whole of the first 20 years that I had lived. Probably as a direct result of his relationship with Mrs. Everest, he had a great affinity for my nanny. I'm sure she brought back happy memories of his old friend. Both of these strong-minded and independent women would have laid down their lives for their charges without one second's hesitation. During the war, any discussion of defeat in our house was taboo, but that did not stop my nanny thinking and planning. Convinced, no doubt, with very good reason, that if Hitler invaded Britain, his first target would be the entire Churchill family, nanny knew she must be ready. Most people have an image of Winston Churchill. On the 10th of May, 1940, standing on the steps of 10 Downing Street, having just become prime minister, with a cigar in one hand and making a V sign with the other, with snowy white hair and not a lot of it. In fact, he was born with bright red hair. My brother and sister and I had all inherited his red hair. How on earth was Nanny going to escape with three carrot-topped children. She decided she would dye our hair black and take us to live with her parents, who had a pub in Liverpool. Fortunately, she did not have to put this plan into action. If she had, I know she would have succeeded. Her mantra was, say that you can and you will. It's all in the state of your mind, and that was what I was brought up with. One day, when London was being heavily bombed, and our parents were away. She was convinced the house was going to be hit. So she called Downing Street and within moments, an armored car was there to take us to Chequers. Waiting on the steps was the prime minister who greeted us with the words, poor little shelter brats. The Chequers visits in the early fifties, I remember very well. The war had been over for six years and I'd never known life without rationing for food or clothes. In my grandparents' house, there was no Victorian policy of the children being seen and not heard or only speaking when they were spoken to. As soon as we could sit in a proper chair and use a knife and fork, 
we were at the dining room table regardless of the company. The first Christmas I remember was at Chequers in 1951. Hollywood could not have done better than my grandmother. She was a perfectionist in everything that she did. We had the tallest tree and the most enormous turkey. Hundreds of beautifully wrapped presents all set out in family groups around the Great Hall. Carols and tea parties. And Father Christmas in the shape of either my father or one of my uncles. And we were such dim children, we didn't ever recognise them. And we had crowds who gathered to wish us well at church on Christmas Day. While we celebrated, the country had to still be run. There was a team of secretaries in attendance, pens poised night and day, waiting to take dictation from the Prime Minister dressed in his siren suit. His siren suit was something that he decided to invent for himself when he knew he was going to have to jump out of bed in a hurry when the air raid sirens went off and he knew it was going to be difficult to get dressed up in all his proper clothes. So he, I think, could almost claim that he invented the first jumpsuit. And he had them in tweed, in grey flannel, and in the evening in jewel-coloured velvet with slippers to match. Family occasions were interspersed with grand events at which, whenever possible, we children were included. It was the coronation that we watched from a balcony in Whitehall, and the excitement when our grandparents' carriage arrived and he waved his hat out of the window. We thought he was going to fall out, and we, he thought we were going to fall over, but we all lived to fight another day. Then there was his installation as a Knight of the Garter at St George's Chapel, Windsor, which was very exciting, and he was able to dress up again. He loved fancy dress, in long navy blue velvet robes and a big velvet hat with ostrich feathers. Then there was the lying in state of Queen Mary, the grandmother of our Queen, my sister and I were placed in a window under Big Ben to watch the procession come into Westminster Hall for the lying in state. The next morning, there was a photograph in the newspapers. Two little girls, our heads above the coffin, roaring with laughter. No one had told us that we shouldn't smile or laugh. It was an early lesson not to laugh on a solemn occasion when there's a camera around. Nowadays, there's always a camera around. My grandfather's 80th birthday was a cause for considerable concern in the family. The problem was the portrait, commissioned by the Houses of Parliament, one can only imagine intended to give pleasure. But the rumour was out that it was less than flattering. I remember my parents discussing how on earth he was going to react when he saw it. But whatever the concern, no one was prepared for the painting when it was unveiled. To a horrified gasp from the audience, the recipient observed with a wry smile and characteristic humour, this is a remarkable example of modern art. <laughs> My grandmother knew what she was going to do with it. She sent the painting straight to the house in the country and asked the gardener to burn it. Once he was out of office, life centred on Chartwell, the place that Churchill liked best. He believed a day away from Chartwell was a day wasted. After the war, the only people in the world who took Churchill completely for granted were his grandchildren. Even his children were in awe of him. They'd lived through what he called his wilderness years in the 30s, when he was out of office and out of favour, 
and telling the whole world the, the news it did not want to hear, that there was going to be another war. But it was at Chartville that we found him most relaxed. We would visit him in the morning and find him propped up in bed with the newspapers strewn all over the bed, his cat snuggled up by his side, Rufus's poodle running around, and Toby the Bradgerigar swooping in to share the breakfast. He loved any living creatures. Once he was up, we would go for a walk. Accompanied by Rufus, we would set off to feed the fish in the ponds that he had cre created himself. As he threw the food into the pond, the fish, quite naturally, would come up to eat. He would turn to us and say, you see, they know me. We tried it ourselves and discovered they were just as friendly to us. <laughs> then we would go to see the pigs. He used to say, dogs look up to us, cats look down on us, but pigs treat us as equals. I do like pigs, he used to say. <laughs> but the man who would win the Nobel Prize for Literature couldn't think of anything more original to say to the pigs as he scratched their backs than oink, oink. Grandpapa's birthday on the 30th of November was a command performance. We all wanted to be there. Every year there'd be a magnificent cake, his favourite champagne, Paul Roger, sparkling in the glasses, and, of course, the aroma of good Havana cigars. Cigars were, of course, the obvious present, and every year I would go with my mother to the cigar shop in St James's Street to buy a single cigar. They would lay out an array for me to choose from. And I honestly thought I was choosing. But I discovered afterwards they were all the same cigar. <laughs> but the excitement is that year he smoked my cigar and I could sit on his knee as he, as he puffed away. My abiding memories of my grandfather are at the dining room table at Chartwell. Here we would gather for elegant and sumptuous meals, every one of which was an occasion. Dressed as usual in his velvet siren suit, he was at his happiest, surrounded by as many members of his family as possible. He'd had rather a bleak childhood, so he wanted to make sure that his family had a cosy one. While my grandfather made sure that the food was perfect, he was not content until everyone had a glass of Paul Roger in front of them. As a result of Winston Churchill's taste for the good things in life, his on occasion suggested that he consumed more alcohol and smoked more cigars than was good for him. I don't think there's any doubt about that. On one occasion, he was in the House of Commons, and the Labour Member of Parliament, Bessie Braddock, came up to him and said, Winston, you're drunk. And he said, and Madam, you are ugly. <laughs> Tomorrow morning, I shall be sober, but you will still be ugly. I've never met anyone who ever told me they saw him seriously the worse off for drink. But he did like to have a large glass of very weak whiskey and soda and a cigar close at hand. The full glass remained untouched for long periods of time and the cigar, having gone out, was what he called dead in the ashtray. On one occasion, he observed, I've taken more out of life, out of alcohol, than alcohol has taken out of me. Thinking of war, he said, I could not live without champagne. In victory, I deserve it. In defeat, I need it. In the spring of 1959, we were all having lunch at Chartwell 
when my grandfather asked my mother if she and I would accompany him on the Onassis yacht that summer in the Mediterranean. I was so excited. I'd hardly ever been away. I was not yet 16. A few weeks later, after I'd been equipped with what seemed like a bridal trousseau, we boarded the Christina in Monte Carlo, ready to embark on the most glamorous holiday imaginable. As we sailed out of the harbour towards France, Italy, Greece and Turkey, the guest list could have come straight out of the pages of an Agatha Christie novel. There was the multi-millionaire shipping magnate Aristotle Onassis, his beautiful young wife Tina, their two young children, Alexander and Christina, all four members of this family, independently one of the other, would come to a tragic end not many years later. There was the diva, Maria Callas, and her extremely boring husband. And there was my grandfather, my grandmother Clementine, my mother Diana, and me. Also, the usual Churchillian entourage, his private secretary, Anthony Montague Brown, and his wife, a bodyguard, a valet, and a lady's maid. The scene was set for an idyllic holiday on the most luxurious yacht in glittering companies. Ari and Tina Onassis were the most attentive hosts. Maria Callas, the most irritating guest. Irritating, that is, to all save one. My grandfather once observed, we are all worms, but I do believe that I am a glowworm. Modesty wasn't his second name. It was naturally and generally assumed that, as always, the attention of the world press would be centred on the glowworm. It soon became clear that this was not to be. Jealous of having to share the limelight, Callas decided she would turn it to her advantage. She hired her own personal team of paparazzi to meet us at every stop and photograph her as near to Churchill as she could get. One day, we arrived in the magnificent amphitheatre of Epidaurus and found it absolutely piled high with flowers. This was Callis's natural habitat. And she turned to my mother and said, Oh, Diana, what kind people. What beautiful flowers. But why do you think they're in the shape of a V? She hadn't heard of V for victory, which was my grandfather's permanent sign. I'll never forget the look of fury on her face when my mother said, because, Maria, they're for Papa, not for you. By this time, it was not just Callis's spoilt and ill-mannered behaviour which concerned everyone. I was having a lovely time. I was seeing, acted out before my eyes, the sort of thing that I could only read about in the magazines that were considered unsuitable. A romance was going on day by day. Onassis and Callas had embarked on one of the famous, most famous love affairs of the century. By the end of the cruise, both marriages would be over. But for the time being, the show had to go on. And go on it did. France, Italy, Greece, Turkey, the Bosphorus, and the Dardanelles at dead of night in case memories of World War I upset my grandfather. This was the first of my wonderful holidays with him. I just happened to be an available grandchild of an appropriate age to accompany him to the south of France over the next few years. There I had my first taste of grand hotels, or in fact, hotels of any sort. After the war, we'd had, money was rationed, so we couldn't go on holiday, really, because you only had 50 pounds to spend, so that didn't go very far, even in those days. 
my bath would be run, my clothes unpacked, and there was always something hang, someone hanging around longing to do something for me. I quite naturally assumed that this is what hotels were all about and decided I'd like to spend a lot of time in the future being pampered in this way. Unsurprisingly, hotels, however good, have never quite come up to my early experiences. These were essentially painting holidays and the warmth of the Mediterranean sun. Travelling with Winston Churchill in no way prepared me for the hurly-burly of modern travel. We would drive right up to the aeroplane in our car, which as well as the passengers carried the canvases, the paints and the easels, all the necessary elements of the days ahead. It was only later when I travelled on my own that I realised that the request for no pipe or cigar smoking had been amended to allow my grandfather to puff away on his big cigar. I don't think it would have made a bit of difference because during the war, when he was told he had to wear an oxygen mask in unpressurised aircraft, he agreed on condition they would adapt it so he could smoke his cigar at the same time. <laughs> a posse of French police outriders would escort us from Nice to the border of Monaco, where, with the precision usually associated with the brigade of guards who guard our queen at Buckingham Palace, they changed places with the Monagas police. After this ceremonial arrival, we settled down to a time of quiet and peaceful companionships, painting trips, drives and picnics, all of which was lovely. But for me, the very best thing was to have to myself the grandfather the whole world thought they owned. Ever since he got his first pocket money at the age of seven, my grandfather's expenses always exceeded his income. He was therefore most understanding about money. Extraordinary that a man who couldn't manage his own finances was made Chancellor of the Exchequer. But he would often ask me when I went to say goodbye after I'd been staying with him, are you all right for money? And I'd always say I was, and at the same time he would reach into his bedside drawer and draw out a, a, a wad of notes which he would press into my hand. As I thanked him, I would imagine that this was the result of a midnight flip to the casino, which he could get to by going into the lobby of the Hotel de Paris and down into a secret passage which went under the square and rose up in the casino so no one knew he'd gone. Painting was his passion and it was his stress buster. And by the time he died, he had painted more than 500 pictures. Considering he didn't start till he was over 40 and he had a few other things to do in his life, it was amazing he did so many. He, one picture that, he's, that he did in, in Marrakesh after the Casablanca conference when he'd hijacked President Roosevelt to go with him, he gave to the president. And this was sold about four years ago to Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. I hope it's not going to be split in half in their divorce. I was with him when he put the final brushstroke to one of his last paintings, a dazzling still life of oranges and lemons, an endearing memory of Mediterranean holidays. Whenever I look at it, I hope that he is fulfilling his desire for the afterlife, of which he wrote, when I get to heaven, I want to spend a considerable portion of the first million years painting and get to the bottom of the subject. So I do hope he's up there on his cloud painting away. My friends were always welcomed by my grandparents at Chartwell, 
After a leisurely day of croquet and tea on the lawn, we would sit down to the usual sumptuous dinner. After the coffee, my grandmother would rise from her chair, catch the eyes of the ladies, and say, shall we leave the men to their brandy and cigars? I will never forget the look of terror on one young man's face who I'd taken to dinner. I was about 18 and he was 22. When my grandmother did her usual trick and he realized he was going to have to have his first cigar and his first brandy with the most famous man in the world because we were only four for dinner. It all went fine. It transpired by happy chance. He'd just finished his military service in my grandfather's old regiment, so they had a lot to talk about. One day in the summer of 1962, <coughs> the, the peace was, sh <coughs> was shattered. Sorry. When, <coughs> when Grandpa fell and broke his hip in Monte Carlo. He didn't want to die on foreign soil, <coughs> which at 88 was a real possibility. As I walked with his secretary, Anthony Montague Brown, to the hospital, Anthony said, you've got to prepare yourself, Celia. He's not going to make it. We arrived at the hospital, and there we found him lying in bed, looking incredibly frail, surrounded by more nurses and doctors than you could possibly imagine. They were on a sightseeing tour, clearly. <coughs> he summoned his strength, and he dismissed them all. And he turned to Anthony and he said, I want to die in England. You'll make that happen, won't you? Anthony didn't reply for a moment. So he said, promise me, Anthony. So Anthony said, I promise. As we walked back to the hotel, Anthony said, Celia, I fear that that's a promise I'm not going to be able to keep. When we got back to the hotel, he immediately rang 10 Downing Street and the Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, agreed to send a VC-10 RAF ambulance plane to take us home. He was put into the plane on a stretcher bed which was put on the lift that takes the food up to the aeroplane and then wheeled into the stripped-down body of the aircraft. I sat on a chair and held his hand and hoped and prayed that he would make it. When we got to Heathrow, he was again lowered on the elevator. He caught sight of a little crowd of distraught-looking airport workers. He looked and he smiled and he gave them a V sign and they cheered. He looked as though he'd got a burst of adrenaline. He looked so much better. We knew he was going to be all right. He was all right, but never quite the same again. Life continued, but at a much slower pace. We made one final visit to France. Otherwise, his time was spent between Chartwell and the London House by Hyde Park. I'm sure that any of us here who are old enough remember exactly where we were on the day that President Kennedy died. I was alone with my grandfather, and the two of us were having dinner and suddenly a television was placed on the dining room table and we sat and watched it together as the dreadful story unfolded and history was made before our eyes. Tears poured down my grandfather's cheeks as the news came in that the young president was dead. And again at the sight of his beautiful wife bravely watching the new president being sworn in while wearing her pink blood-stained suit. They seemed young to everyone. 
how young they must have seemed to that man approaching his 90th year. On the 30th of November, 1949, his 75th birthday, Churchill said, I am ready to meet my maker. Whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. <laughs> 15 years later, we celebrated his 90th birthday. The unspoken thought around the table that that meeting could not be long delayed. Six weeks later, he had a massive stroke and it was clear that the inevitable was about to happen. The country braced itself. The family prepared for the end. The patient slumbered on, his faithful marmalade cat snuggled up at his side. This went on for 10 long days. And every day when I went to visit, that cat was in exactly the same position. It never seemed to move. A few years before, he had predicted that he would die on the anniversary of his father's death. Early on the morning of the 24th of January, 1965, we gathered round his bed to say goodbye. 70 years to the day since his father had died, Winston Churchill slipped imperceptibly away to meet his maker. The machinery of state began to put into action the arrangements for the state funeral that the Queen had ordered for him, and which some years before had been named Operation Hope Not. The whole country was in shock. It seemed to affect everyone, young and old alike. This was no, it was no tragedy. He was more than ready to go, but it just seemed to touch everyone's heart. People came from far and wide and queued for hours along the river and over the bridges to file past the catafalque in Westminster Hall. And they lined the streets for the state funeral. He was taken on a gun carriage, escorted by the marching troops and the mass bands that he liked so much. The men of the family walked behind the coffin and the women rode in the Queen's carriages. My Aunt Sarah has the best words to describe that extraordinary day and the journey from Westminster along the streets of London to St Paul's Cathedral. This is what she wrote. Now we were nearing St Paul's Cathedral. I remember seeing it silhouetted in flames from the roof of the Savoy standing by my father's side all those years ago. We'd been told it was not necessary to curtsy to the Queen and her family. They were already in their seats. For the first time in English history, the monarch waved the president and waited for her humble servant. He loved Chartwell. At one time, both he and my mother had planned to be buried there, next to his poodles, Rufus I and Rufus II. But one day, a few years before, the idea came to him to return to his birthplace. He had survived almost a century, and his thoughts as he wandered around Blenheim that day must have been all-embracing, for he decided to commit his bones to the earth where his father and mother and brother Jack awaited him. The battle hymn of the Republic crashed through the great cathedral as the bombs had crashed around it in 1940. Ghosts, they only live in our desire. It is perhaps our memories that see the fireflies hover over the lake and dance where no human could. He's gone, a barge did come and carry him on. The gull grey sky held, the steel cranes bowed their heads and the Thames ran softly on. He is gone, 
what is mortal of him lies at Bladen. After all the pomp and ceremony of the state funeral, the faithful servant who had served six monarchs was restored to his family by the side of the Thames. There he began his last journey up the river to the railway station, the cranes dipping their heads all the way. We buried him at Bladen in a tiny country churchyard next to his parents and in sight of Blenheim Palace, where he'd been born 90 years and so many adventures before. The first 21 years of my life were spent growing up with my grandfather. The years since, I've spent with him in a very different way. I've travelled through the letters and diaries of his early years. I've retraced his footsteps and sometimes his hoof prints through the forests of Cuba, where he rode with the Spanish forces against the Cuban guerrillas. I've travelled all over South Africa, reliving his thrilling adventures in the Anglo-Boer War. In Morocco, where he insisted on taking President Roosevelt to see the sun going down on the Atlas Mountains. And of course, to the United States, the birthplace of his mother, Jenny Jerome, which he called my other country. I've learned much about the man who, on becoming president, prime minister, said I felt as though I was walking with destiny, that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and this trial. I've remind, been reminded of his belief in his destiny. He wrote to his mother when he was 23 and a soldier in India and said, bullets mean nothing to me. I have faith in my star that I'm intended to do something in the world. His courage, both physical and moral, have constantly been in evidence. His power of communication and his wicked sense of humour. Without pomposity, his wit dealt with the sort of tricky situation in which leaders sometimes find themselves. He was sitting out in the margins of a wartime conference at the White House when an inebriated GI put his head round the door and we assume not recognising him, said, hey, fatso, where's the John? (laughs) The Prime Minister replied, turn left in the corridor and you'll see a door-marked gentleman, but don't let that deter you. (laughs) He showed how wit and humour are a useful part of the armoury for everyday life. When an opposing speaker in a parliamentary debate noticed that Churchill was apparently dozing, he said, must you fall asleep when I'm I'm speaking? To which Churchill replied, without opening his eyes, no, it is purely voluntary. (laughs) The first woman member of parliament in Britain was an American called Nancy Astor, and she and my grandfather did not get on. And one day she said, Winston, if you're my wife, I would put poison in your coffee. He immediately replied to him, If I was your husband, I would drink it. (laughs) One day, he he went off on a long journey in 1930 all around North America, ending up in Richmond, Virginia, at the governor's mansion there, where the governor was Harry Bird. And I got this story from Harry Bird Jr., the governor's son, who at 14 had the oldest living, oldest memory from the youngest witness. He was 14 when my grandfather went to stay at his parents' house. And he told me how there was, his father adored him, his mother couldn't stand him, particularly because he wanted to change the menus, he wanted to change the meal times. can you blame her? And also, worst of all, he ran around upstairs in his underwear. But she provided him with a state banquet at which chicken was on the menu. 
When the butler handed my grandfather the dish and asked him which bit of the bird he would like, he said he'd like some breast. The lady sitting next to him said, Mr. Churchill, in this country we say white meat or dark meat. The next morning she received a little posy of flowers and the card read, please attach this to your white meat. <laughs> What would have happened if Winston Churchill had not been called upon to lead his country in its darkest hour? Without him, who, in the words of President Kennedy, on making him an honorary citizen of the United States of America, would have mobilised the English language and sent it into battle? Who else could have offered blood, toil, tears and sweat to such effect? Without Winston Churchill, the world would be a very different place. Did that leave you wanting to learn more from Celia's unique perspective? You can catch her full speech and a question and answer session with President Hargis on O-State TV right now. Thank you for listening to this week's Inside OSU podcast. I'm Julia Benbrook. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. <laughs>